So who is Jesus? We talk about him a lot here, you know, as a church, right? But if there's one thing that Mark is showing us in his gospel, it's the identity of Jesus. Who is this man? This is the question we've been faced, in, faced with chapter after chapter, week after week as, we gone, as we've gone through this book. He tells us in the beginning of the book who Jesus is. He introduces the book by saying, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And since we started out, no human in this book has called Jesus the Son of God. Mark has gone to great lengths in this book to show us who Jesus is. But not only that, in almost every vignette, we haven't been faced with just the evidence of who Jesus is, but the question itself, who is Jesus? Each scene has been crafted intentionally to challenge us, and it's almost like Jesus himself is asking us, who do you say I am? Because we've watched his interactions, whether it be with demons ironically calling him the son of God, or the religious leaders ironically accusing him of being possessed by a demon, or maybe it's a mother who's considered an unclean Gentile calling him Lord. Or maybe it's the religious leaders who are actually calling Jesus unclean himself. We've seen Peter confess him as Christ and then deny him three times when confronted by a servant girl at his trial. We've seen crowds cry Hosanna as he triumphantly enters Jerusalem. But then we've seen crowds accompany Judas with clubs and swords as they come to capture Jesus. And all along the way, we've been invited into this story. We've been invited to identify with the characters, to see where we align. We've seen some people miss him entirely. We've seen some who have come so close to understanding but not quite been there. And then we've seen some completely get it. But really, there are only two categories when it comes to Jesus. You either reject him or you believe in him. You either miss him or you get him. So we've come to the point in this gospel where it's time for us to answer the question, who is Jesus? He's just been arrested in the dark of night. He's been questioned, falsely accused, and beaten in front of the Sanhedrin. They batter him with questions, and he only answers one. They ask him, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? And Jesus says, I am. You will be the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the of heaven. This made them tear their garments. The fact that Jesus said basically that he's God. He's the son of God. And now we're at the climax of the story, Jesus's crucifixion, the death that he repeatedly predicted to his disciples. Everything's coming to a head. We have the evil motivations of men and the mission of Jesus converging as he crawls to his death. All the major players we've seen throughout this story are coming together. We've got the religious leaders, the crowds, the Roman government, whose whose power to uh, crush, kill, and execute has been looming over the story the entire time. And then we've got Jesus by himself. And as Mark rapidly depicts the moments leading up to Jesus' death, we're going to get a window into a series of interactions that these major players have with Jesus. He gives one last chance to figure out where we are in this story. Will we miss him or will we get him? 
we're going to see that there's many ways to miss Jesus, but just one way to receive him. So last week, Kevin preached on Jesus's time in the Garden of Gethsemane and how he sweat drops of blood as he prayed for God to take the cup of his wrath from him. Then how he was captured in the middle of the night, his disciples fled, he was left alone to face a sham trial before the religious leaders who made up the Sanhedrin. Now the Sanhedrin has come to the conclusion conclusion that they have enough to sentence Jesus to death for blasphemy. But the thing is, they're not authorized to actually execute him. They've got to convince the Roman government that Jesus is a threat to peace and that he should die. And this is where we pick up the story in chapter 15. Look with me at verse 1. And as soon as it was morning, the chief priests held a consultation with the elders and scribes and the whole council. And they bound Jesus and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate. So now Pilate's the first player in this series of interactions that we're going to go through. And he was the Roman procurator, which uh, means that he was in charge of all Judea over the whole region. He could ratify or reverse death sentences made by the Sanhedrin. Uh, He was actually the one who appointed the high priests. He was the one who uh, was in control of the temple's money. He was in charge of the Roman military in the region. And every festival, he would come from Rome to uh, Jerusalem with additional troops just to ensure peace. Because festivals were a time when many Jews traveled to Jerusalem and the conditions were ripe for rebellion. So what do you think his first question is for Jesus? He asks, are you the king of the Jews in verse 2? He wants to know if Jesus is really saying that he's a king. If he is, he should be put to death right away, according to the Roman laws of treason. But Jesus only says, you say that I am. And he doesn't answer at all after that. Now, this is the first time Jesus and king have even made it this close together in a sentence in Mark. It's not the first time that the concept has come up because the Christ or the Messiah is the king of Israel but it's a revelation in the form of a question. And for for Pilate, Jesus' answer is just ambiguous enough to keep the trial going, not to just send him off to the cross right away. There's a sense that Pilate isn't too concerned with Jesus. He'd rather not be bothered. He's not taking pleasure in Jesus' situation, but he's also not interested in Jesus' true identity. He wants to know, are you an insurgent leader or not? He's trying to get the job done as quickly as possible. And he wants to do it quietly and prevent an uprising so he can just pretty much move on with his day. He's got one job to do during his time there, and that's it. So just a few verses down, we're going to see that simply based on the persistence of the crowd, he condemns Jesus. Not based on any crime, any personal interaction that he has with Jesus, anything to do with Jesus' words. Just the persistence of the crowd. That's how much he doesn't care about this. He's apathetic. He doesn't even want to stop and ask, who is this man? He's a busy guy. He's not interested in investing the energy that it takes to get to the bottom of who Jesus is. He's indifferent. And apathy or indifference is one of the many ways to miss Jesus. I worked at Stop and Shop for seven years And uh, after my first year there, I worked my way up to being a front-end supervisor, which meant that I didn't have to sit behind the cash register anymore. I got to walk around, tell people what to do. And I also got a 25-cent raise. (laughs) 
And the best part of that was that every cashier knew that the only thing that separated me from them was that 25 cent race. So I didn't get much respect. But I'd get paged often when an item would ring up as something other than uh, what it was marked for, if it, if it rang up for more, because we had a policy that if that happened, you'd get that item for free. So you can imagine that customers got pretty excited when their item rang up inappropriately, and I got called over. And In the beginning, I'd, I'd walk back, and I'd go check the price, leave the line piling up. But a year or so in, I, I just stopped bothering. I said, you know, we'll give it to you. Here's my key. Here's my code. Have a nice day simply because I was apathetic. I don't want to hear your story. I don't want to dispute with you. Here, take it and go. Let's keep this line moving. And I I was in my authority to do that. That was within the rules of my job, but I just, I didn't care. And this is how Pilate is treating Jesus' trial. This is his approach to the Sanhedrin. It's his approach to the crowd. And it's his approach to Jesus. He misses Jesus. Apathy and indifference to Jesus will cause you to miss Jesus. In our effort to keep things moving, in our own busyness or self-importance, we can fail to even take the time to ask the question, who is this man? Next, we've got the crowd. And just the word crowd shows up in Mark 31 times. The crowds have been a presence throughout the entire book. They're their own character in the story. And, and the crowds are a major player. The reason why the Pharisees took so long to capture Jesus in the first place was because the crowds scared them because they were in favor of Jesus. The crowds followed Jesus everywhere, but they were pursuing miracles, mass feedings. They welcomed him in Jerusalem, shouting praises and laying down palm branches, but they showed up in the garden to capture him with Judas bearing clubs and swords. And from there on out, after that point, the crowd is not in Jesus' favor for the rest of the story. The point of, the, of, of that is that crowds are fickle. Now, I'm not saying that every person in every crowd was the same person, but Mark is showing us something. And we're going to see that they get a chance to help Jesus, but they opt out. So for every Passover, Pilate had this tradition of releasing a prisoner to the Jews, whoever they asked for. If you look with me in verse 8. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them. And he answered them saying, Do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? So now if the crowd is consistent in this book, the answer would be yes, but they're not. They asked for a man named Barabbas, a man whose name fascinatingly means son of the father. And he was imprisoned for committing murder during an insurrection. And they asked for him. Why? Because they're irrational. They're fickle. They're swayed to and fro. And right now, Jesus looks weak. He looks like the losing party. He's a disappointment. When we entered Jerusalem, they cried, Hosanna, save us. But here, he can't even save himself. Barabbas took action. He was in an uprising. He killed people. That's how it's done, right? We want a rebel who kills for his people, not a king who dies for his people. Look with me at verse 12. And Pilate again said to them, Then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews. And they cried out again, crucify him. And Pilate said to them, why? 
What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, released for them Barabbas. And having scourged Jesus, he delivered him over to be crucified. Jesus didn't turn out to be who they expected or who they wanted. And not only are they disinterested in him, they're angry. How about you? Are you disappointed in Jesus? Did you expect something more? Maybe you've got an immediate need that hasn't been met, or maybe God hasn't performed as you believe that he should. You thought he was one thing, and now you're like, I'm not so sure how I feel about Jesus, given my circumstances. He can't be my king if he doesn't give me what I want, when I want. We need to be careful about what we assume Jesus has promised us. He doesn't promise the crowd immediate deliverance. And he hasn't promised us painless and easy lives. But we will miss Jesus if we expect him to be who we want, when we want. Our fair-weather hearts will cause us to miss him. So next we've got the chief priests who brought him to Pilate in the first place. And they're the ones who are inciting the crowd to shout for Barabbas. Verse 10 says that Pilate perceived that it was because of envy that they delivered Jesus up. They're envious of Jesus. They want what he has. They want the power. They've seen firsthand what he can do. And instead of inspiring them to belief, it causes their envy to boil over. They can't conceive of a spiritual authority like Jesus. They won't have it. They've got to be in charge of others and in charge of themselves. They've got to be over people, telling them what to do, and nobody gets to tell them what to do. They don't want a spiritual authority. They don't want someone who's redefining their rules, someone calling into question their actions, someone who by nature of their goodness reveals their sin. Jesus is a threat. Jesus threatens our autonomy. He threatens the comfy kingdoms that we've built for ourselves. And this is just the origin of human sin. Adam and Eve ate from the forbidden tree in the garden because they wanted to be like God. They wanted to flip the authority structure on its head. And if we view Jesus as simply a threat to our autonomy, we'll miss him. If we value our autonomy or our throne more than we value the king himself, of course we're not going to receive him. So Pilate sentences Jesus to death by crucifixion at the request of the crowd and to the pleasure of the high priests. And Jesus is, in, is taken inside by the Roman soldiers. And look with me at verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion. And they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed, and spitting on him, and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak, and put his own clothes on him. And they led him out to crucify him. This is our, first, our fourth interaction, and it's our fourth miss. Jesus is mocked by these soldiers as they pretend to bow down in homage to him. And they're brutal. They're awful. They're finding joy in torturing Jesus. 
but this is what they do. This is what they would do to any non-Roman citizen. This was Rome's way. They're so institutionalized that they don't stop for a moment to consider who they're mocking. Who is it that they're torturing? This battalion could have been up to 600 soldiers. It was probably fewer, but it was definitely a large crowd. Why are they mocking him? Why are they so casually treating him the way that they would treat everyone else? Mark doesn't mention a single soldier who asks, who is this man? Caesar was their king, this this symbol of strength. And the Jews were just an occupied people. There's no reason for them to see any significance in Jesus. He's just another Jewish convict. At best, he's the loser of some religious dispute that had nothing to do with them. If Jesus is irrelevant to you, you'll miss him. For our culture, it might be that Jesus is an antiquated figure who has little effect on life today, or maybe he's the relic of the religion of your parents or your grandparents. He's someone who crazy people believe in, or he's the God of white evangelicals. Whatever misnomer it is that would cause you to believe that he's irrelevant, if Jesus is irrelevant to you, you'll miss him. Now, there's one major player who's missing from this whole account of Jesus' crucifixion, and that's his own disciples. Where are they? In the last chapter, we saw that they fled when Jesus was captured. Peter hung outside his first trial, but then uh, denied him three times when asked by his servant girl if he knew him. James and John are missing. The three disciples who witnessed his transfiguration, who saw Jesus glow radiantly and preview the resurrection, are nowhere to be found. And Mark's silence on this matter is deafening. Look with me at verse 21, as Jesus is led to the place of his death. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. So Simon of Cyrene is ordered to carry Jesus's cross, probably because after being beaten and scourged, he can't carry it himself. Simon, the disciple, who Jesus names the rock, that Simon said that he would follow Jesus all the way to the end, even if it meant death. But it's another Simon with Jesus at this moment. It's another Simon following behind Jesus, carrying his cross. John and James, the two brothers that Jesus named the sons of thunder, are silent. Nowhere to be found. Earlier in this book, they asked Jesus if he would let them sit one on his right and one on his left. And he told them, you don't know what you're asking And he asked, can you drink the cup that I'll drink? And they said, yes. But look with me at verse 27. It says, and with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. Mark uses the same exact wording used by John and James. One on his right and one on his left. But it's not the sons of thunder next to Jesus. It's two robbers. Jesus drinks this cup alone, and he knew that he would. What causes eyewitnesses of God's glory to say the words that they said, 
to commit what they committed and fall away. They missed something. They were insecure. They heard all that Jesus said. He told them three times, I'll be crucified and I'll rise again. But did they really receive that? Did they really believe that? Is that what they were holding on to when they ran away? Peter confessed Jesus as the Christ. But was he ready to receive a Christ who suffers? Was he ready to receive a Christ who calls him to do the same? A Christ who calls him to sacrifice, to service, to lowliness? Are you? Am I? See, the common denominator between all these misses is that Jesus doesn't look like a king to any of these people. Triumphant kings don't get beaten up. They don't get humiliated. The son of God should have power. Why is he suffering? Why is he getting crucified? No one with real power would allow this to happen to them or to their people. Jesus' death is a turnoff. Look with me at verse 29. This is as Jesus is hanging on the cross. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads, saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So Jesus is the subject of mockery, not just because of his death, but because of who he said he was and the way he died. Against his will, alone, silent, powerless. Even those who suffer the same fate as him on the crosses next to him find it absurd. And they use their last breaths to hurl insults at Jesus. Let's look closer at his death beginning in verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, that's the equivalent of noon. He was crucified at 9 a.m. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, leme sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, Behold, he's calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink, saying, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and take him down. So darkness covers the land as Jesus approaches death. And he says these words, and people think that he's calling the prophet Elijah. And so they give him something to drink to prolong his life to see if Elijah really does come to save him. Maybe these are hostile people. Maybe they're neutral people. They might even be the women who are faithful and present at Jesus' cross. But whoever they are, they're curious. And again, they're thinking, if he really is who he says he is, he'll be rescued from this. Elijah is a venerated Old Testament prophet who never died. He was taken up to heaven directly. Jesus here is dying. And they're looking for some kind of miracle to prove that he's the son of God. But it's not going to come. 
Because Jesus is in fact saying, my God, why have you forsaken me? Words from Psalm 22, 1. And it's the only recorded prayer of Jesus where he doesn't pray to God as father. This darkness lasts three hours. It's a supernatural darkness. It's not an eclipse, no matter what anyone tells you. It's not cloud cover. It's true darkness. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if all the light around us just went out for three hours in the middle of the day? Darkness in the Bible was representative of divine lament, human ignorance to sin, and divine judgment. And all three are represented on the cross. Jesus is drinking the cup that he dreaded when he sweat drops of blood in the garden. He's disconnected from the Father, abandoned by God, facing the judgment that was meant for us, enduring the most hellish experience you could imagine. And it's not being bloodied on a cross. It's separation from God. Mysteriously, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, is cut off from God as he bears his judgment for our sin in our place. As the innocent bears judgment even for the evil committed against him that day. Think about that. Verse 37, it says, And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw in this way he breathed his last, he said, Truly this man was the Son of God. And so someone gets it. But before we get into the centurion's proclamation, I want to talk about that temple curtain. Jesus lets out a loud cry. And it's not a quiet whimper. It's a loud cry. And the temple curtain was torn in two, top to bottom. Now, the curtain of the temple was intended to block off this space called the Holy of Holies, which is where God's presence dwelled. It was meant to be a barrier between us and God. So this is another supernatural event. No one went and just tore the temple curtain randomly. Randomly, It, it was 75 feet tall. It was probably as thick as a wall. So it's not something that you could just run up and be like, whoosh, you know, slash it and run away. Um, so it was intended to work as a barrier, and it was cut in two. Upon Jesus' death, it was torn in two. Top to bottom. The death of Jesus marks the end of the temple. God is working in a new way. Jesus said he would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days. And with the destruction of his body, the temple was invalidated. And with his resurrection, it was relocated. Jesus is the greater temple, and there's no barrier between us and him. No restriction to our access. No high priest needed. They're out of a job. The very execution that they carried out invalidated their job. It's null and void now. And who's the first to step through this new open door? The centurion. A Gentile. The head of Jesus' execution squad. The one watching and waiting for Jesus to die. He watched Jesus breathe his last breath, and something about the way he did that made him say, surely this was the Son of God. 
He's the first human in the book to say it. Now, he probably has limited knowledge about Jesus, but we know that it's not what you know, it's who you know. And what he's seen has been enough for him to utter the words that no one else has said in this book. Everyone else looks at Jesus' death, at the way he dies, and sees it as a failure, as a disqualifier. This can't be the Son of God. But for this man, it's the way Jesus died that catalyzes his belief. Christianity is the only religion where God dies for his people. There's no other religion out there throughout history where instead of punishing humanity, a deity punishes themselves. Jesus didn't die because he was weak. He died because we're weak. And more than that, he died because we're sinful rebels. Sinful rebels that he loves. We're indifferent, fair-weathered, power-hungry, aloof, fearful rebels. Yet because he loves us, he chose to suffer and die so that we could live. He endured hellish separation from God so that we could be united with him. He was abandoned by the Father so that we could be children of God. So Jesus might not be the God that you expected, but he's the God you need. And I'm going to close with a line from this poem called Jesus of the Scars by Edward Shalito. The other gods were strong, but thou wast weak. Thou rode, but thou didst stumble. They rode, but thou didst stumble to a throne. But to our wounds, only God's wounds can speak. And not a God has wounds, but thou alone. Let's pray.